0: The legal cannabis industry has unlocked generational wealth opportunities across the country. But the industry's regulatory complexities, constant state of change, and speed of evolution drive confusion for entrepreneurs and investors alike. On this podcast, we'll interview the industry leaders who are shaping the future of the legal cannabis industry to help our listeners understand these idiosyncrasies. This is Cannabis Unlocked, hosted by Key Investment Partners. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Unlocking Cannabis. I'll be your host today, Jordan Euculus of Key Investment Partners. Today, I'm really grateful to be joined by Bob Hoban and Brent Johnson of Clark Hill. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast today.
1: Thank you, Jordan, appreciate it. Yeah, likewise, thank you, Jordan.
0: Absolutely. So Brent and Bob, the two of you are actually uh, two of the very first folks I got to know in the cannabis industry. Uh, as you know, not um, probably not uncommon for most cannabis entrepreneurs, one of the very first calls you make is to the law firm and say, hey, how do I do this? And more importantly, how do I do everything legally? So <laughs> um, yeah. I've been really fortunate in, uh, to get to know you all over the last several years, Brent in particular, as a member of our advisory board, gotten to know you really well. And so your, your feedback uh, uh, to our firm has been really valuable um, and I'm sure will be really valuable insights that you guys can provide to our listeners as well. Um, no, it, and so with with that, would love to just kind of dig into a little bit of your guys' background, you know, your career path, and then how you decided to uh, make the move into the cannabis industry. So, Bob, why don't we start with you, and then Brent would love to get your background as well.
1: Sure, yeah, yeah, no, much appreciated. Uh, I mean, look, I I, uh, I started, uh, I I became a lawyer in 2000, and uh, I realized uh, beginning in, uh, around 2009 that there were beginning to be commercial opportunities in the cannabis space. As a result of that. I, um, I looked at a firm that would be cannabis-centric, uh, bringing business acumen to the cannabis industry. A lot of people don't always know this, but at the beginning of the cannabis industry, uh, a lot of the attorneys happened to be criminal defense attorneys mm-hmm. that serviced some of the early movers before there was heavy regulation and heavy commercial activity. Um, it was just the, the notion. And then Neither Brent nor I have ever been a, a, a criminal pr- a practitioner, but once the criminal practitioners sort of got to the extent of their experience and needed people that understood finance and contracts and employment law and real estate, uh, that's when when we started to, to jump into the field, um, and it became really really exciting. And you know, Brent and I have log- logged a lot of miles together, and, and you know, in large part uh, built the Hoban Law Group uh, together. Uh, for a number of those years. And you know it's pretty exciting, although as as you point out, we uh, the Hoban Law group did merge into uh, M law firm Clark Hill uh, on July one, uh, which we're very proud of. It allows us to provide a broader range of services and and have more and more experienced attorneys to service our our uh, diverse clientele. So um, that's kind of, uh, how we got to where we are today. Although I will tell you a very, very brief personal story, how I got into medicinal cannabis was that my mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Uh, And this was before we formed the law firm. And, you know, and and I beginning to identify how to obtain legal cannabis, because my mother would not consume cannabis if it was not done 100% legally under state law, uh, I started to meet some folks. And then those folks said, well, you're a lawyer and you help commercialize this. That's how we began to open the first dispensaries in Denver. And then we sort of took that show on the road to multiple other states.
0: Fantastic. And Brent, how about from your end?
2: Yeah, well, again, the, thanks again, Jordan, for, for having us on. Uh, super excited to be part of the team uh, and your, uh, your advisory board. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I, I was an Air Force Academy guy, spent some time in the military, uh, so uh, got my MBA as well. I've, I've always kind of been a hybrid kind of lawyer finance guy, um, JD, MBA type. Um, I started my legal career out in Silicon Valley. At, at the time, it was one of the top three high-tech law firms uh, based right in, South, in Palo Alto. So general corporate transactions, securities, M&A, venture capital, private equity. Um, was there for about four years. Uh, came back to Denver, was with the largest Denver firm, doing the same kind of work for a couple of years. Uh, was associate general counsel at Quiznos for about four years during their big, big growth phase. We, you know, we had a very large uh, private equity exit uh, for Quiznos. Um, left there, ran a couple startups, um, all, all business stuff. I mean, I was you know I did legal work, but mostly you know running the front end of these businesses, uh, you know, marketing, finance, uh, ops, that kind of stuff. Um, and then I ran, I helped run a, about a sixty-five million dollar private equity fund for about, uh, about about four and a half years. Uh, we exited that. And then I joined a small boutique investment firm that started looking into cannabis, and so that's kind of how I I, so I came at cannabis from more of a finance uh, business uh, perspective, um, and that's what I met Bob, and you know he and I eventually joined forces. You know, I came on board, and, and he and I over you know a period of four years grew the Hoban Law group from fifteen attorneys to about fifty attorneys, uh, tripled revenues. Um, But also got to the point where we just saw that I think the best future for the firm was to plug into a larger platform and and kind of catapult ourselves uh, uh, to the next level. So that's how we ended up with Clark Hill. Um, The industry has been fascinating. You know, I've learned a ton. uh, Mm It's still moving fast, um, and it's, it's been exciting for me.
0: That's fantastic. And would love to dig in further into the Clark Hill acquisition. Congratulations, Bob, as you mentioned, that transaction went through July 1. And so would love to learn a little bit more about that and, you know, kind of how you view that as a precursor to other m a in the industry. Uh, but before we get there, we'd love to kind of go back to the early days of the cannabis industry. You know, and as, as you mentioned, when you were first getting into the industry, the few attorneys working in the space were mostly criminal defense attorneys. You know, I think a lot of the corporate lawyers were still so nervous about even touching anything cannabis related that they said, we just don't even want to, you know, deal with it. And so, I just would love to hear a little bit more about your thought process early on in terms of how you said okay you know this is a space that is clearly going legal and and I want to be at the forefront of, of jumping in despite some of the regulatory gray landscape that we're in today
1: yeah I mean Jordan this industry uh, working in it feels like dog ears and uh-huh. and I mean that sincerely in the sense that uh, you know look this 2000. 2000- 2009 in denver till here we are in 2021 it feels like an entire career so the early days you know feel like a long long time ago when in reality you know it was it wasn't that long long ago but we've done so much we've we cracked open what is now known as a cannabis attorney there were no such thing as cannabis attorneys before we did what we did there was never a national cannabis law firm. There was never a full service business oriented or what we would always coin as cannabis business oriented law firm to service clients with a one-stop shop. Uh, we also, I've written legislation for over 35 countries around the world. We've built the global cannabis supply chain together with the help of our clients being retained by governments all over the world. We opened up this thing that nobody had really heard of at least commercially and widespread before we did it. You may or may not have heard of, of what CBD is. Nobody knew what CBD was on a large scale until we were hired by the first company in the United States that began to import it, and we helped them create distribution strategy. We were there at the first for so many of these things that when you look at, both Brent and my resume, people go, this has to be fake. You're like one of these quote-unquote <laughs> cannabis experts that come into the industry and say, I know everything about cannabis, yet you've only been around for two years. We've been doing this for, for over 12, 13 years now, collective or, or, or independently, and, and, and we've, we've run so many traps, state policy, local policy, international policy, uh, commercial activity, the first nine-figure deal in the cannabis space came through this law firm. So there's a lot of very exciting things that we were a part of, but mm. much like uh, you know, anybody that's successful in life or in business, you can't rest on your laurels. You can't look back and say, hey, I did all of those things. That's why you need to you know, recognize me. You have to keep going forward. Uh, and you know that's something we've always prided ourselves Brent and I spent countless hours on the phone in a conference room, so forth and so on, saying, what's next? What's coming next? And how can we prepare for that? How can we add lawyers with the skill sets to anticipate what's next? How do we service our clients based on what's next? And I think in large part, the Hovind Law Group was always the answer to the question, what's next? And, and, yeah. and we're very, very proud of that. And, and, and don't get me wrong. There are other really, really great lawyers and other great law firms in this space that have been around, maybe not as long as us, but uh but close and 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 they've done equally great work. So we don't pat ourselves on the back uh, exclusively, but uh but it has been a lot of work, but it's been a ton of fun.
0: That's awesome. It sounds like it's been a ton of fun. And you know, like you mentioned, 12, 13 years in cannabis is working in dog years, effectively a century in, in cannabis. <laughs> Um, would love to hear some of the insights that you've gained over those last 12 to 13 years. I mean, what are some of the, you know, most notable changes you've seen in the industry? Any big surprises or, you know, unexpected events
1: uh, that you saw, you know, now in hindsight? Well, Well, I mean, look, I'm frankly surprised that we still haven't seen some semblance of federal legalization and we can talk about what's going to happen in the future further down the road here on this call but at the same time i am surprised that we're looking at this i remember being at a conference in 2013 in chicago and um The folks from Tilray were on stage talking about their early stage non plant touching investment strategy, because at that that point in time, that was really the only viable strategy for investment firms or or folks that were looking at the big picture, Uh, because, you know, that was still before Trudeau and Canada uh, did what they did and, and some of the other countries obviously followed suit, but it surprises me still because that group The Tilray Group, at that point, they said, we expect there to be federal legalization of some sort within 18 months. Mm -hmm. And I said, it seems a bit bold and aggressive, but guys that are participating at that level, they maybe know something. And I'm just surprised that we haven't cracked this open when we're looking at our neighbors to the north and to the south and all over the world, creating a viable, 100% legal supply chain. Another thing that surprises me is, uh, two two more things that surprise me is, Number one, that we're maintaining this distinction between hemp and marijuana. Cannabis is cannabis. Mm -hmm. Cannabis should be regulated based on its uses. We shouldn't have to maintain this fictional distinction between hemp and marijuana because we're afraid that a certain level of THC is going to put a smile on somebody's face. That is just silly in this day and age when we know the science behind it is tried and true. And then, you know, last uh, but not least, I, I think it's... Not surprising, it's expected, but the idea of this increasing sophistication and professionalization of the industry, what is surprising is, is the resistance to that. It's this notion that this industry is ours, ours meaning the OGs, the folks that have worked in the legacy market for so long. Somehow that there's ownership to an industry that pushes out uh, professionals and pushes out you know, the Wall Street types, pushes out big business when you know, when a train's coming, you either gonna get out, get out of the way or you get on it. And this is an industry that makes billions and billions of dollars projected to be tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in the next five to 10 years globally. The train is on its way. Mm-hmm. You've got to get on the train. You can't sit in front of the train and go, no, this is mine. Train go another way because you know what happens.
0: Yep. Yeah, you know what happens, you know, and and that's really interesting on the first point with federal legalization. And, you know, I think it'll be good to dive in further about what that looks like going forward. But I'm curious just to dive in a little bit further about the last, you know, 12 years. Why do you think that we haven't seen more progress at the federal level? I mean, is, do you think it's just partisan politics and the Dems and the Republicans just don't want to let any major legislation get passed regardless of the popular support? Or, or is there something more nuanced to it than that? You want
1: to know one of my favorite terms in, in just a cynical and and, and, and creepy way? Generational die off. You know what I mean by that? And, and I don't say that lightly because mm-hmm. I think that's what this is all about. I mean, when you look at people that stand in the way of legalization, it is just an absolute no towards cannabis based on myths, based on propaganda, okay. propaganda based on falsehoods and not based on science. And that goes across the party aisles. And I'm not, singling out Republicans for that mentality, because the Democrats have not been very good leaders on this ind- on this industry, on this topic at the federal level either. But I do think it's a matter of erasing political leaders and their, their old notions based on faulty premise or falsehoods that have colored their thinking. Now, I was in North Carolina last week, and somebody told me years ago that uh, if every state in the, in the country legalized marijuana, uh, that that North Carolina would be the 60th state out of 50 states to do so. Meaning it's (laughs) never going to happen, right? But we're there last week and they're talking about medical marijuana in a very real policy-driven way. So I do think that, you know, there is an argument to get people over that hump. But that to me is the thing. And I don't wish people to die that's not what i'm saying but the idea is that mentality that's just so rooted in old school notions that are not baked back by facts or science that mentality has to die off and i think that's what we're waiting for at the federal level because right now nobody wants to attack it if the pandemic causes the economy to get worse there is an absolute 100 guaranteed tool for the biden administration to drive economic development and job growth, and it's called cannabis legalization. And there's no political capital wasted if you do that, because 80% of the people in the country across party lines want to see it happen in some form or fashion, Mm -hmm. even in conservative states. So at the end of the day, um, it surprises me that that notion maintains uh, its prominence when It's a done deal. Legalize it. You will create jobs. You will create government and private revenue streams. And you will, you know, in effect, address a public health crisis that can be satisfied through the cannabinoid system, the endocannabinoid system and phytocannabinoids from the plant.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Bob. That's that's uh, some really good insights there. Um, so shifted a bit to the Clark Hill acquisition. Congratulations again! You know that's a huge uh, milestone and really a testament to all the work that you and the team have uh, put together uh, at the Hope and Law Group. So would just love to you know to the extent you're able to talk a little bit about how that transaction came together. Um, you know what was the thesis for Clark Hill for wanting to acquire Hope and Law Group, and then you know what do you think that this uh, this says about the implications for further M and A down the road across the cannabis industry.
1: Sure, I, I, I'll take that. And Brent, obviously, feel free to jump in at any time. Yep. Look, Clark Hill is a 130 year old plus law firm. There's something really, really challenging and exciting about bringing cannabis to a 130 year old law firm with leadership that fully supports this industry and developing a practice that's one of the most sophisticated in the top 100 firms in the country if not the world leading this space so they looked out and they found people like us who have um using their words we punched above our weight right the home law group as brent pointed out you know at our height we had uh, probably 50 to 52 people uh, attached to us uh, you know, in various forms and fashions. And it, and it was a wild ride. And these are some of the greatest people and some of the best lawyers that I ever met. And, and, and most of them remain very, very good friends. But it was time for change. Historically, year after year, big firms had contacted Brent or contacted me and said, look, we want to build a cannabis division. Would the Hoban Law Group want to come in and be that? Uh, and we fielded those calls. In the early days, Brent and I didn't know what that meant. We've never been through a law firm acquisition before. So we went, we met with folks, we learned, we listened. We looked at the the, 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 the financial elements of it. We looked at the resource elements of it. Um, and over the years, in my gut at least, it was always, the time is not right. I don't want to do this right now. We like what we're doing. We like the autonomy. Um, but last year, something really set uh, uh, sank in for me. And it was, you know, Another thing is when you own your own firm, Um, especially someone who knows the industry as well as I do, we were highly sought after for executive positions. Brent and I aren't just lawyers. I've served as a term CEO for some of the largest multinational botanical extractors in the world building out their cannabinoid divisions. Brent serves as a COO and a CFO to this day for a number of companies in the cannabis industry um, that wanted expertise, professionalism, and executive competency. So that was against our legal backdrop. So for me, believe it or not, With all these exciting opportunities, I just wanted to focus on one thing. And and focusing, at least for the time being, on one thing led me to say, well, let's go out and shop it. So the first thing I did was I offered it to our our attorneys within. I offered to our partners. I offered to our next tier of attorneys and said, do you want to take over the Hovind Law Group? Because I don't want to own it or run it anymore. I'm just burnt out and and there's other opportunities. And those folks, they, they they weren't interested in that. So I put it on the market, for lack of a better way to put it. I talked to about 50 law firms, 48 specifically, uh, across the country. We talked to large consulting firms that were global in scope, and we really narrowed that process down. Who understands the industry? Who supports the industry? And who's going to treat people like Brent and I and the team that we bring in as more than just a lawyer that goes and sits in their corporate division? That's someone that can build and lead an industry group around this industry because we have unsurpassed industry knowledge coupled with high quality uh, skill set in, mm-hmm. in the legal field mm-hmm. and then be able to add some other lawyers to it so so that's kind of how it transpired over time um i narrowed it down to about five firms and, and clark hill just fit for some of the reasons i mentioned before but also because they're just really really good people and that sounds silly or or patronizing to say but i've talked to the other five firms that made the cut in my mind they were good people, but these are really, really good people with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a cliche, Midwestern values, and belief in people and what you can do and, and building things. And they think outside the box a little bit. So that's the opportunity that this presented to us. And you know, Brent, maybe you can pick up from there because I think you've seen and and we've seen the other opportunity is it, it it allows us to, to, to touch clientele that are at a much higher level than we would regularly be able to touch at the Hoban Law Group. And why is that important? Not just because they're bigger companies or the fees are bigger, but because if we didn't get to these bigger companies first, they're gonna go somewhere else and they're not gonna get the industry expertise piece of it. And they're gonna lose a lot of money. And we've seen it happen over and over and over again. It's the industry expertise coupled with the legal expertise that I think makes it a perfect match. But, But Brent, what's your observation? Yeah, no. And,
2: uh, you know, I agree with all those points for sure. You know, I I think I think what's been exciting is the fact that, you know, when I came in about five years ago, you know, it was literally it was was a small firm. You know, Bob had built it to a certain level. And, you know, he and I literally built it from, again, 15 to over 50 attorneys, uh, triple revenues. Uh, it, it was, and that's kind of my thing, right? I'm, I'm a startup guy. I like growing businesses uh, through that stage. And we got to 50 and we started really looking at you know, the industry and the potential competition and the future. And we kind of had to do, you know, it, uh, once cannabis becomes legal, we're just another 50 attorney of law firm, right? Um, and even though we have cannabis expertise, you know, uh, we, we can no longer really differentiate ourselves. And so we really kind of had to decide, do we put the gas on ourselves and really try to accelerate organic growth. And go out and try to hire a bunch of people, or do we effectively catapult ourselves, you know, kind of to a, a tier one level uh, by an acquisition? So we were at that point where we just kind of had to make that decision. And fortunately, we found uh, Clark Hill to be a great partner. Um, it, it, obviously, uh, ton, tons of attorneys, lots of expertise. You know, now we can do deals, you know, ten times the size as we used to be able to do. Um, we have tons of resources, offices across the country and and, and overseas, and so it, it just made a lot of sense. And you know, as cannabis becomes more legal, um, it, it was just time to make a move, and, and we found the right partner at the right time, and so everything came together.
0: That's fantastic. And so, Brent, you know, obviously, it makes sense that um, more traditional law firms want to get into cannabis now that you know the writing's so clearly on the wall about the path that legalization is moving towards. And so, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on what that uh, indicates for M and across the rest of the industry? You know, do you think that? this is just kind of the first inklings of, of what's to come across the whole kind of ancillary cannabis space with more traditional folks getting in.
2: Yeah, but there, I mean, it kind of, kind of ties on to the last point, which is, you know, the, the, the big firms have been watching cannabis for, for a while and they're starting to dip their toes in. Uh, but to your point earlier, there's a lot of folks that are still hesitant to jump into the space. You know, uh, kudos to Clark Hill for, you know, kind of jumping in and, and, and really taking a big, uh, big play in the space. Um, but yeah, the deal sizes are getting larger. Uh, the sophistication of the parties are, 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 are getting larger. And so, yeah, we're definitely seeing more deals, larger deals, uh, more folks outside the industry coming in. I think um, and this kind of tags into a point that you, know, you, you touched on earlier. You know, what's what's still surprises me in terms of kind of the advancement of the industry is this still the severe lack of education about cannabis, about the plant. And when I came in five years ago, I knew nothing about it. Um, and, and now that I know a lot about it, um, first of all, it's fascinating uh, and my viewpoint on the plant and how it's used and what we can do with it you know, has changed dramatically. And, and, and I still think there's a huge, I mean, I, as you know, I deal with lots of larger investors, uh, investment groups, other professionals. Uh, and it's amazing how much I have to get on the phone and give them cannabis 101 just to make them understand, you know, marijuana versus hemp and here's what you do with it. And it's not just about getting high. Um, you know, 90% of the use of the plant is, has nothing to do with getting high, um, and, and so as people learn about it, more folks come in, but that's also the advantage that we've had in this space is that you know, we understand the plant, and you know, we can talk, uh, I mean, whether it's the, you know, the guy running the dispensary or the $100 million uh, firm, you know, we can hang with those guys, talk to them, provide them the services that they need, uh, both from a cannabis standpoint and also kind of a more sophisticated uh, finance and, and corporate uh, standpoint.
0: Yep, that's great, that's great. So then moving along to uh, talking a little bit about regulation, you know, obviously we touched on the kind of broad sentiment of disappointment, I'll say, in, in the lack of federal progress, but I do always like to, um, to draw people's attention to all the fantastic progress that's being done at the state level, right? And I think, you know, since the November election, from a recreational standpoint, we've seen South Dakota, Montana, New Jersey, Arizona, Virginia, Connecticut, New York. Um, I'm sure I'm missing one or two. Uh, But anyway, you know, so point point being is that it seems that there's not only continued progress at the state level, but accelerating momentum at the state level. And so I'm curious if you guys would agree with that assessment. Um, And if so, you know, where where you think um, or what you've seen is the most effective ways for different states to pass legalized medical or recreational cannabis.
1: Well, look, Jordan, at the, at the, at the beginning, uh, these always had to be citizen-initiated measures. In other words, people, typically activists, before there was really commercial activity, would band together, get signatures, get something on the ballot and say, hey, politicians, this is what we, the people, want, and it, the proof is in the pudding because more than 50% of the people voted for it. Uh, and you have to adopt the law. That was almost the exclusive way by which these things happen. And we recently saw New York, Cuomo, Cuomo had some other things going on, but and maybe there was a little bit of diversion or, or smoke and mirrors there, but they passed legislation for adult use without having to go through that ballot process. Um, other states have done the same thing. In fact, you know, just, just yesterday we saw um, uh, uh, states move forward with with adult use cannabis. Um, or pardon me, just yesterday we saw Italy pass adult use cannabis without having to go through a citizen initiative sure. measure. So that's an evolution of just how these things have crept up through the public policy pipeline. Now, states have had to enact policies in the face of the violation of federal law because the federal law, federal government hasn't changed their policies. But they're comfortable doing so because over time we've seen a spending restrictions at the federal level from the department of justice going after operators in those states and we've seen the politicians in those states the government get get used to the tax revenue from these businesses so the states are not just saying hey this is what our citizens wanted we have to do this they're saying don't get in the way of us in this revenue stream because it's helping us build schools and supply public education programs, so forth and so on. So I think that that's changed it a lot. Now, what you're seeing is entirely fascinating now, and I'm not so sure that many of us would have predicted it, is the lobbying from folks that are successful in the commercial industry at the federal level. The debate is, should we have interstate commerce or not? Mm -hmm. That's not a Foregone conclusion that interstate Mm. commerce is a good thing for existing players. In fact, it might be the opposite because they have their foothold. Plus, I think why we've come from a policy perspective where someone like Cuomo is comfortable and people are are, are comfortable supporting this without having to go through a citizen-initiated measure is because there's hundreds of thousands of jobs in the United States dependent on this industry. That's because of the inefficiencies in the state-by-state approach. If there was outright federal legalization, imagine an efficient system where there was one U.S. supply chain. And let's say in, the, in Kansas, there was a huge growth facility and it was distributed all over the country to dispensaries or, or sales outlets. You might have 25,000 or 50,000 jobs. Instead, you've got hundreds of thousands because you have to inefficiently replicate an entire supply chain state by state by state. That's a good thing. Not only for the tax revenue and the dollars but it shows politicians at a very meaningful level the local level that this is an important corporate citizen this is an important part of our economy and our job supply chain and these are our constituents and that's what's got us here today so i think that's why you'll see more and more states i mean look mississippi southern states are moving forward with medical marijuana programs and marijuana programs that are commercial I don't think many of us saw that coming when a place like Louisiana with a medical marijuana program just 10, 12 years ago would lock people up for years, if not for life, for three strikes and you're out for possessing a joint. So uh, we've come a long, long way.
0: We have Oklahoma as well. I mean, one of the most robust medical markets in the country. Um, you know, and I think you bring up really interesting points there in that discussion. I would love to dive in a little bit more on the interstate commerce point in particular. And I'll tell you, you know, when when Key started investing, uh, part of our thesis was generally to avoid multi-state operators. Initially, it was just because of exactly what you talk about, right? The fear that as federal legalization occurred and interstate commerce opened up, that a lot of these existing infrastructure would just become redundant and unnecessary, and you're growing in you know inefficient climates. Now I think, as we've seen, federal legalization drag on much longer than expected. That these MSOs have really been able just to benefit from these massive cash flows, and and so probably will be able to weather that storm if and when interstate commerce does open up. But that's my long-winded way of asking: you know, what do you think the likelihood of interstate commerce occurring is going to be? And and naturally, with the commerce clause of the Constitution, is there even a realistic Regulatory framework where it's legal at the federal level, but there's still restrictions on interstate commerce.
1: Yeah, I I do. I think that I I think that right now you've had most recently the 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 proposal, which is the Schumer bill right that's not going to pass Congress, Mm -hmm. Uh, not now, but it's a combination of the MORE Act, meaning more social and criminal justice based provisions. We, we all would agree that that's probably something that's long overdue. But it also couples it with a descheduling, a descheduling, and a commercialization of it. I don't know if commercialization on a national scale is something that's ever going to be efficient. I mean, look, the, the Farm Bill was passed for hemp in 2018. We still don't have FDA regulation yet, and it's almost mm-hmm. three years later. Uh, Regulations take three to five years to enact when there's a commercial component driven there. So I don't know if outright federal legalization is the way to go. I like something closer to the States Act, which maintains the current status quo of intrastate commerce and just removes that activity from being a violation of the federal law. To me, that's probably the safe first step, coupled Mm -hmm. coupled with an export allowance, because there's countries around us all over the world the Canadians ship high-priced mediocre quality cannabis around the world right now and the people that are competing with them come from Latin America because of the lower price point and the higher quality of growing outdoors oftentimes or in a tropical environment um, that, that there's, there's, that's inefficient. you got Israelis uh, exporting cannabis that are grown indoor uh, the, the, something needs to give. The U.S. has consumers, but it should also be the leader in technology and international commerce surrounding the development of medicines, API-grade <laughs> cannabinoid products and ingredients, and to set the trend and the tone for how these programs should roll out, especially especially when we, the United States, supported and the United Nations adopted a reclassification of cannabis back in 2020 that mm-hmm. will take years to implement as well. So, you know, I think interstate commerce is, is a couple of steps away, maybe even a decade or more away. But mm-hmm, I do think mm-hmm. federal legalization evolves in some the export component and the intrastate commerce component, which kind of mirrors the Cole memorandum. And, and for those of you that f- followed the industry, you know, Cole was a Department of Justice attorney who put together a memo. Uh, and that memo basically said, if you do these things in your state then we're basically going to leave you alone. And I think those principles still apply today as good policy. Totally. Uh, and I would
2: just uh, I would tag on the uh, one of the interesting points that, that uh, you alluded to, Jordan, and that Bob hit on is there, there's there's some pretty significant benefit to, uh, to a lot of these companies for cannabis still being illegal at the federal level. I'm mm-hmm. talking marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, and even for Hogan Law Group, I mean, that's been our competitive advantage, right? Um, that's allowed us to stand out uh, amongst all the other law firms because we're one of the few that would, you know, dive all into it. And so that's, that's, a, that's been a, a huge help to us uh, in terms of our competitive advantage. And I think a lot of companies uh, feel the same. And to your point, you know, uh, these folks that are operating state by state are making decent money um, just, just because it's just, uh, illegal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, w- whether that moves soon or not uh, remains to be seen. But, you know, if they could just do things that would address like banking, you know, that's obviously a big issue. Um, and that would certainly help these businesses run. But, you know, for Hoban, it's it's actually, you know, we were OK with it being illegal because that, that was our competitive advantage.
0: Yep. Yep. No, that makes sense. And I think it's a very similar thesis to what we had at key investment partners. Right. I mean, as we thought about, you know, splitting off from our prior kind of blue chip firm. If we'd gone into something like cryptocurrency or artificial intelligence, virtual reality, right there, you're competing with the huge institutional VCs, the Andreessen Horowitzes, the Sequoias, kind of Perkins of the world. But with cannabis, because it's this complex regulatory gray area, we really felt that we we had a competitive advantage there. So I think that definitely fully resonates, not just you know with with legal and investment, but I think across the industry today, right? And yeah. um, and so. You know, I guess uh, I guess now I got to ask just the hundred billion dollar question. What, what do you guys think that pathway to federal legalization looks like from both a framework and timeline perspective?
1: I think the Safe Banking Act will pass in some form or fashion next summer, not just think in a speculative way, but based on following it very closely and being involved in Washington, DC in those efforts. If that passes, that's a game changer because then all of a sudden banking is available. What has been the impediment to large institutional groups uh, and uh, large CPG companies like the proctors and gambles of the world, not just federal legalization, which banking would be part of that, but if banking is available, then the dollars legitimately get lined up in those banks, for de- being deployed to open up these capital markets on a major scale in the US. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, that's gonna make what happened in Canada look like a drop in the bucket. And of course that was to the tune of billions and billions and billions of dollars. So when those capital markets open up and when the banking is available, then the people in Washington, DC, they're not just gonna hear legalize it from industry actors, operators, and activists. And not there's anything wrong with that. The activists got us here. The industry operators moved us along and pushed the needle and created the the, the regulatory and the commercial uh, environment for people to support the po- policy change. But the people in Capitol Hill need to hear from Amazon. They need to hear from Uber. They need to hear from the people that own Walmart. They need to own, they need to, and I hate to say that because that'll rub people the wrong way, but that's the reality of the world we listen to, we live in. The the people in Washington, D.C. need to hear from outside of cannabis industry operators and activists to push it over the edge towards legalization. I firmly, firmly believe that. And I think that's what you're going to see. And Amazon did that recently, by the way. They said, not only do we support it, but we're going to actively lobby it. When the dollars are available to be banked in anticipation of legalization, then you're going to see that push us over the limit, whether that becomes intrastate, interstate. Or what? Like we talked about five or eight minutes ago, you know that remains to be seen. But I think that's the the the, the catalyst and the and and the event. Um, sure. And and Brett, we've talked at length about how capital markets are really. That's how things open up here. Yep. Do you see it the same way. Or do you see it a different way.
2: Oh, no! Just to echo what you said. The uh, I don't. I don't see that. I don't. My sense is that Biden's not in a hurry to to try to drive through uh, legalization. So I don't see that happen uh, anytime soon. I think the big pressure is on on primarily the banking because that's going to uh, allow large in- institutional investors um, and and other players to come and bring money into the industry, which will catapult the industries to the next level. Which in turn will put more pressure back on the uh, you know, on on uh, Congress to to do something. But I think banking is going to be the big push over the next uh, year or so to get the uh, to get that fixed. Great.
0: Yep. Well, hopefully. Uh... Hopefully we can get that fixed. And you know, I know all the businesses that are interested in listing on the NASDAQ and the IC would hugely you know, appreciate having access to traditional capital markets. I think a lot of the public codes that are on the CSC today would likely benefit from a big uh, jump in valuations if they are able to uplist to a major exchange like that and, and really benefit from uh, capital flows from traditional institutions. So hopefully you guys are right in that expectation.
1: Uh, Jordan, only, only time will tell, right? Uh, and, and that's, uh, that's the, the bet that, w- that we've all made. And uh, uh, so far, so good. But I think the future is really bright. Um, we're going to see this plant um, provide so many things, as Brent pointed out, not just smokable or ingestible products, but, but products that make the, the environment healthier and better, products that make uh, consumer packaged goods uh, more efficient and, and less harmful to the environment, um, and we're going to see industrial uses that minimize the use of, of other pollutants. So I, I think we're on a really, really good pathway. The question is, how do we change the policy to cause the commercial change, or does the commercial change lead to policy change? As I was alluding to a few minutes ago, with you know what's going to push us over the bat. That's what we're all waiting to see. And you know, I think that the commercial actors have to realize this is one of those scenarios where the politicians need to be led, not be the leaders.
0: Absolutely, need to be led. Well, Bob and Brent, thank you again both so much for taking the time this afternoon. It's been a really interesting conversation and hopefully valuable for our listeners. Um, Just to kind of wrap things up, what type of clients are you working with today at Clark Hill? And for folks who are looking to engage counsel, what's the best way for them to reach out to you all?
1: So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, there's there's sort of two tiers of clients that, that we service in the cannabis industry. And for us, not to use the word marijuana, because I know there's a stigma behind it. But legally speaking, the cannabis industry has two sides, the marijuana side and the hemp side. Mm-hmm. So the bread and butter client uh, is the tier two client. In other words, regulatory contracts, basic corporate transactional needs, real estate, employment law. Um that's your day-to-day. And then the top tier are the folks that are looking at M&A and looking at high-level complex securities work. Uh, by the way, incidentally, my co-chair and partner at Clark Hill, a guy by the name of Sanders Zespi, recently joined us from, from Greenspan Martyr, where he repeatedly worked on large nine-figure deals in the cannabis space. So we're building on something very special. Uh, so whether you're a tier one, based on my definition, or a tier two, uh, we've got almost 700 lawyers that are there to fill the needs in just about every market in the United States you can think of, plus an office in Mexico City and Dublin that, uh, that we're very proud to sort of use as a springboard for those uh, other markets. Brent, um, you do a lot of things outside of the practice of law. So what, how would you describe some of the clients that, that, that you're looking at and talking to and how you can help?
2: Yeah. And Jordan, as you know, you know my background well. You know, I I'm definitely uh, tend to be more investor-focused, uh, work with a lot of investment groups, uh, I think even even at Hoban, we put together over $500 million in investment funds uh, across a, a bunch of clients, uh, the largest fund being a $100 million fund. So we do quite a bit of that, special purpose vehicle work, uh, certainly higher end uh, uh, mergers and acquisitions, uh, private offerings, uh, VC financings. You know, we've done over you know, hundreds of millions of, of both private equity and, and VC deals. Uh, so we, that, that's kind of my focus. Uh, and to Bob's point, I also, as you know, um, serve as an advisor on, uh, to a number of investment funds. I sit on a couple of boards of uh, you know, early stage companies. Um, I, I do a lot of capital advisory work, folks that need help with their pitch decks and their business plans and their financial models. And so it's much broader than just uh, being a corporate lawyer. You know I'm a full service um, kind of finance slash uh, lawyer guy. Uh, and then I'm general counsel, effectively the outside general counsel for, for a bunch of my clients, uh, general corporate transactions, contracts. Uh, All all the stuff that Bob mentioned, IP, real estate. Um, And and now that we have Clark Hill, we have over 100 people just in the the corporate group alone. So we have a huge uh, platform to to access in terms of resources, full IP department, real estate team, finance team. Uh, We have more folks that are uh, involved in investment funds. So we're we're kind of building that out as well. So we've literally kind of catapulted 10X to the next level. And can. there's really nothing that we can't handle uh, deal size or, or type of transaction at this point.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks again, gentlemen. Really appreciate you taking the time this
1: afternoon and hope you have a great rest of the day.
2: Thanks, Jordan. Appreciate it.
1: Yes. Thank you, Jordan. Good luck with everything. Appreciate you having us on. We'll chat soon. Yeah, absolutely. Take care.
2: Yeah. All right. Take care. Thanks.